A few years ago, Desmond Tutu was teaching a graduate course. And every day he would walk into his course and he would talk about the love of God, even though the course wasn't about the love of God. And this was right after he had been through the the taxing task, the hard work of leading the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. So he would come into this graduate course where there were students from America and other students from around the world, and, and he would talk every day about the love of God. And he walked in one day and he said, I've heard that there's groaning from some of you in this room that wish I would move on from talking about the love of God. And he said, the reason I can't move on, the, the, what is causing a halt in the progress of me moving on and talking about other things is uh, until some of you get it. It's all I can talk about. Um, I'm jumping into a five-week series on love moves. I want to talk about the love of God and the impact it has for us. And I I guess I just want to start off as a church. I hope that that we have a desire to love God and to understand the love of God and to model the love of God in the way we worship when we come into this room, in the way we fellowship with one another inside and outside of this room, in the way we post whenever we do post online, in the way we live, in the way we engage our neighbors, our strangers, that we are modeling the love of God for everyone around us. When it comes to the love of God, remember that, that the love that God has is not just an expression from God. It's not just something God occasionally does or God thinks about doing. If you read 1 John 4, 8, it says, uh, here's how we know who, who the love of God is and, and what the love of God is, is that God is love. Like the song we just sung came straight from Scripture. I mean, that's 1 John 4. We were just singing Scripture that God is love. This is who he is. And a truth I want to stand on over the next few weeks is that love, the love of God is not stagnant. The love of God does not stay still. The love of God moves. The love of God is coming into us and it's flowing out of us. The love of God is not like some, something you order at a restaurant and hope that it comes to you. The love of God is not like a, uh, some vending machine where you have to put something in to get something out. The love of God is flowing all over this world today, whether people realize it or not. People woke up breathing today because the love of God is real. Um, The love of God is here. The love of God moves. Uh, So this is the five-week journey we're going to be on. Uh, I want you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. And uh, I want to read, uh, I know on the screen it says one through four, but I want to read one through 14. It's going to be on the screen for you. I hope you have your Bibles open out in front of you. And I want you to hear, because here is a time when God talks about the loving nature of God. And there are times where God, people give God names. This happens throughout the Old Testament. There are times where people are bearing witness to the greatness of God. But when God pauses to talk about himself, you better listen up and underline things and take some notes. Here's how Exodus 34 plays out. The Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you broke. <laughs> and I don't know if God said it that way or not, but it's like, man, I already made two. And you broke those. So here we're going to make another two. So this is, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have been given to Moses. And then the people start worshiping something that's not God. They built an idol and Moses like dropped them and broke them. So here's God who's coming back and telling him, hey, here's, you broke these. But I I want to put these commandments in your hands again. Be ready in the morning and you come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. And no one shall come up with you. 
And do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountain. And do not let flocks or herds graze in front of that mountain. And in that moment, I'm like, if I'm Moses, I'm like, man, I think I can do a fairly good job of keeping the people from coming up on the mountain. But, you know, flocks and herds have a mind of their own, right? But God's laying down these commands. When it comes to you meeting with me, here, here are some things I need in place. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones. And he rose early in the morning and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. And I love this. this is, it blows my mind. Every time I've read this over the past couple of weeks, it just does something to my heart. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name, the Lord. This is God descending down to Moses. And, and I don't know if this was like a greeting, like, you're Moses, I'm God. Or if this is God coming in his glory and revealing to Moses all he is, the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. And here's what I want you to acknowledge, because I want to show you how this plays out throughout the Bible. Here's what God says about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, some of you are raised with an idea of God, that God is quick to anger. God is slow to anger. A lot of times I'm not. God is slow to anger. He says, I am slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see this sometimes in the Bible where God talks about blessings coming to the 10th generation or generation after generation and, and that if there is sin, then, then there may be curses coming to the third and fourth generation. And I don't think the way this works is that blessings are going to the, to the people who've done good things. And for those of you who sin like three or four generations from now, God's gonna strike one of your, great-great-great-grandchildren with a stomach bug or a sprained ankle, all right? I don't think that's how God works. I think God is talking about the, the way you love God creates a cycle for generations to come and some of the evil that is in you becomes this evil that is handed down from generation to generation. And God, he's laying all this out there. Verse eight, and Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. Then he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And listen to what God says. He said, I hereby make a covenant before all your people. I will perform marvels such as have not been performed in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you live shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And think about this. God has already created the world. God has already delivered them from Egypt. God had already parted the sea. And here's God saying, the covenant I'm making with you is gonna be, it's gonna be a marvel for the world to see. I'm not through doing amazing things in and through you. I want this to be true for this church today. For God to look upon us and say, hey, the wonderful things I've done is not just things you'll read about, but there's still wonderful things I wanna do in and through you. And then observe what I command you today, verse 11. See, I will drive out before you the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Antbites and the Parasites and the uh, Cellulites and the Hivites and the, the Jebusites. It's in there, all right? Verse 12. Take care not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you are going, or it will become a snare among you. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, and cut down their sacred poles. For you shall worship no other God, because the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So God lays it out. And I want to come back to what God says about abounding. He is abounding in steadfast love. I remember I was at the beach with my boys. This was probably five years ago. They were, they were 
younger than they are now. And Casey was, I was about to say they're young, but they're still young, all right? Casey was, she, when Casey goes to the beach, she's, she's like, hey, just leave me alone. I want to sit in my chair, and I just want to marvel at the water, and she'll stay there for 12 hours, all right? And the boys are active. We want to do stuff. So I remember one day we were out there, and we are playing around, and, 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 and somehow it came up how God created the waters. And sometimes I like to make these teachable moments with my kids, and sometimes they stick, and sometimes they don't. And, and the waves were coming in. We were trying to jump over the waves and through the waves, and I said, guys, do you think you are strong enough to stop the waves from coming? And they're like, oh, yeah, Dad, we can stop them. So here they are out there, and they're trying to form a wall and to press back the waves, and the harder they tried, the, the worse they were failing. I mean, it, they were just failing. They, you couldn't do it. And I remember we sat down, and I was like, guys, I want you to remember the rest of your life. This is what it's like with the love and grace of God. You can never stop it from coming. It just keeps coming over and over again. Every morning, it greets you, and it comes. And God says, I am abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love. And I want you to see how this plays out throughout the rest of the Bible. Look, in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, it says this, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Listen to Nehemiah. He picks up on this in chapter Chapter 9, verse 17, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And one of my favorites, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, this is the end of Jonah, when Jonah was mad that God had forgiven and redeemed the Ninevites. Here's what Jonah says. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said this whole while? Like, Jonah's mad because God is who God said he was. That this is why I fled the Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishment. So throughout the Old Testament, people have handed down from generation to the next generation the truth about what God said about himself in Exodus 34. This is not just something that was written in a book and people are reading it. This is oral story, sitting around a fire, one generation handing this on to the next generation. It's here's what you've got to know about God, that he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I remember a few years ago, there's someone who came to my office. And there are times people come and they bring criticism to me and I need to take it because I need to learn from it. I remember a person came to my office a few years ago and they said, Josh, you talk too much about the love of God and the grace of God. And the person said, and they, they even made the point of saying, you just, you just get up there and it's just love, 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 love. It's just loving God, all right? You talk too much about it. We need to talk more about sin and hell. And, and, and I was like, does, does it have to be either or? And I've heard this, and I've heard this in other places. I've heard it in writings of, of their, the, the church today talks too much about grace and, and love. Here's the deal. There is no such thing about talking too much about the love of God. But here's the thing, it is possible for us to be very selective when it comes to how we talk about the love of God. And it, very selective in that it's, it's uh, we can talk about the love of God and how it is inclusive and bringing all people in, yet leave out how the love of God does make demands. And the love of God is often found next to obedience in the Bible. 
It's possible for us to talk about the love of God where the love of God is something that God does for me but not talk as much about how the love of God is calling me to extend this love to all of the world. We can be really selective with how we talk about the love of God. And here's another thing. When it comes to the love of God, it is possible for us to live or even model bad love, not good love. And some of you in this room, and I hate this for so many of you, that what once or what was supposed to be good, godly love in your life has turned into forms of betrayal or pain. But, but whenever we experience any form of bad love, it, it shouldn't make us like close the door on love. It should make us crave how God is restoring love for humanity and for all people. Uh, there's a story I was reading uh, Don McLaughlin wrote a book. In fact, next Sunday, I'm here, but Don McLaughlin is, uh, is a friend of mine. He preaches in Atlanta. I'm bringing Don in to speak, uh, to preach for us next week. Don just wrote a book on love. And he told this story about Hillary Ferguson. And, and, and she wrote this article, and this went viral a, a while back. It's called The Ugly in Christianity. And here's, here's what she wrote. I proudly called myself a Christian. And now I shy away from the term. I avoid discussions about it because I have family members I love so much who are still part of the church, but I will never again be one of them. And I'll tell you why. When I was 18, a freshman in college, on the cusp of adulthood, already questioning my faith and whether or not I even believed in organized religion, a woman stood up in a Wednesday night Bible class and she said, praise the Lord, Ted Kennedy is dead. I sat there slack-jawed, shocked and disgusted, and the, and the uh, dimming lights of my already fragile faith flickered out as everybody in the room, even an elder, laughed. And they laughed and laughed, and the woman said, if I could, I would go and I would dance on his grave. And she did this little jig and turned around with her hands in the air, and again, once again, there was more laughter, louder laughter. I wish I could say that was an isolated event, but things like that happen often. They happen and nobody stopped them. And judging by Facebook comments, I'm pretty sure they probably continue today. The truth is that kind of attitude cannot coexist with God in any form. And I refuse to be a part of any organization that would affiliate with that kind of rhetoric. Perhaps that one room doesn't define the church as a whole, but I've been to enough of them, met enough of the members to know that the people who would have laughed are the outliers. She says this, I love that church dearly, I truly did, but at some point, I learned that the love of the church only extended to the end of its borders, to the end of the doors. And outside those doors, there was very little love to give. I felt betrayed by their laughter, by their dirty words, I felt disheartened, and I was turned away from God, most likely never to return. Because if that is an example of God's love, I would rather seek love elsewhere. I've read that kind of, I've read those expressions from people. I've sat across tables with people who share about how they have been hurt by the church or by other folks. And sometimes my first, my, like my knee-jerk response is to become de- defensive. Like, well, come to my church and, or come to, I want you to sit down with people I know who, who live out the love of God in ways that are so much better than that. But there are times when I hear those stories or I see what people have those stories and what my response needs to be is, I'm sorry. And for me and the church, we've got to repent of when we have not lived good love and have a desire to do better. Like what hurts if we ever take a posture like that, right? Like as the church, there are things we've got to repent for that, that, that we've done and strive to do better. In Exodus 34, God says something about himself. And in the New Testament, Jesus embodies what it means 
for God to declare and to live out in himself that he is abounding in steadfast love. You want to know who God is? You look at Jesus. You want to know about the love of God? You look at Jesus. All right, so here's all I want to do. There are five primary, there, there are five main ways we respond when we see scripture because the love of God shows up all over scripture. So I'm going to talk about it for a few weeks and, and what it means for us to love and to love well. And here are five responses to how we read and engage scripture, all right? Number one is this. I think there is a wow. That sometimes when we read scripture, it's wow. God is amazing. When I read scripture, a lot of times, one of the first questions I, I wanna ask is, uh, I'm gonna open up the Bible and whatever I read today, what is the good news? What is the good news about God? And there's this wow moment. Do you ever have these wow moments when you open up the Bible? It's like, oh my goodness, God is so amazing. That's who God is. Number two is this. That's exactly what I needed. There are times we open up the Bible, we read something and our response is, that's exactly what I needed. There are times I've opened up the Bible and I'm like, I have read you hundreds if not thousands of times, yet I've never seen you because maybe I wasn't ready for you. This happens with the Psalms a lot. I'm reading through the Psalms. I was in Psalm 34 this past week, reading Psalm 34, hearing about how God places joy in the broken heart and God protects the bones of the righteous and, and all these verses were just coming to life. What I often do is when I'm reading scripture and God puts a scripture on my heart, I will shoot it to someone who I think needs to hear that. And there are times where there's no response and that's okay. I don't ask for responses. There are times where the response is, thank you. And then there are times where people say, that is exactly what I needed right now in my life. Shooting scripture to your friends uh, can be one of the best evangelistic methods today. Just letting the word of God perform and draw people into the story of God. So secondly, one of our responses is, wow, uh, um, that's exactly what I needed. Third, one of our responses is, ouch. Like that is, that's really challenging. Because there are times where we open up the Bible and we're poking or we're asking questions and then the Bible starts poking back, you know? One of my mentors, one of my dear friends, he taught me at the age of 19, he said, anytime you open up the Bible to study, you should ask this question. If I take whatever I'm about to read seriously, what in my life has to change? I've yet to forgive that man for giving me that question when it comes to reading the Bible. <laughs> if I take this seriously, what in my life has to change? Because when you read the Bible, there are times where God is gonna give commands and Jesus is gonna live a kind of life and call you to that kind of life. And your only response is, I mean, ouch, that's like really hard. Which leads to another way we read scripture. Number four is, mm, nah, too hard. <laughs> Let's just be honest, right? Like there are times it's, yeah, yeah I don't think so. Um, and it, I, I think this is you, even though some of you, even though you wouldn't admit this, sometimes what we think is, well, I'm doing a pretty good job of following these other commands that I read about in the Bible that if I don't follow that one, it does, it's not like it tips the scale too bad, right? I mean, we read stuff where Jesus talks about loving enemies or feeding the poor, or Matthew 25, or it's you are called to clothe the, clothe the naked and give water to the thirsty. And, and there are times you read things that are so hard. It's like, ah, I don't know about that. Which is another response to scripture. Number five is this. There are times where our response to scripture is, well, what it really means is, have you ever done this? It's like, it can't really mean that. I mean, Jesus really didn't call a guy to sell everything he had and give to the poor. I mean, he was just telling the guy like his priorities straight. At times you read things and it's like, eh, well, I mean, that, that was just for the apostles. It wasn't for all of us. I want you to look at those five before we go on. Five responses to scripture. And you may think of other ways we respond to scripture. There's wow. Man, that's exactly what I needed. 
ouch, that's, that's challenging, that's hard. There's a response of, nah, that's, that's just too hard. And number five is, uh, um, <laughs> well, what it really means is, I'm gonna, I want you, I'm gonna place in front of you a few verses in the New Testament that talk about the love of God, and I want you to think about what your response is to these. And there are tons of places in the Bible that talk about the love of God. Here are five, or here are a few. In Romans 5, verse 8, but God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To me, that's a wow. John 13, 34 and 35. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That evangelism in the church is often about how we love one another and the world sees the way we love or fail to love each other. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Statement about identity and who you are in God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 through 46. Here's Jesus. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the right, uh, unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collector do the same. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. And that's one of those, I'm like, eh, I mean, not everything you do. Not if you're driving on Sam Cooper or I-40, all right? Let all that you do be done in love, everything. 1 John 4, 18 through 21. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers or sisters are liars, for those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Is that an ouch? Is that a, what it really means is, well, not if they did something to you, then you don't have to. Yeah. 1 John three eighteen says this, last one. Little children, let us love not in word and speech, but in truth and action. It's not just something you say. It's how you live. The love of God, and here's what I want you to take home with you today. The love of God is about reception. It's inward, inwardly receiving, and it is outwardly extending. The love of God is about inwardly receiving as love and outwardly extending as love. If all you want is to outwardly extend the love of God and bless the world, but you are not taking time to open up your hands and to receive the love, you're gonna run out of things to give. And if all you want to do is receive the love of God, yet not extend the love of God, you are hoarding what God intends to bless the world with. So Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he had over 600 commands to choose from. Yet when the person came and said, what is the greatest commandment? It doesn't seem like Jesus had to take very long to answer. His response was, you love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You love the Lord your God. And secondly is you love your neighbor. That you love God and you love your neighbor. I preach that from up here. We try to live it in our lives. You love God, love the neighbor, but we often leave something out. Because Jesus said, you love God, you love your neighbor as yourself. So you love God, you love the neighbor, and you love yourself. Now, you know people, and you do not have to point at them right now, okay? You know people who love themselves way too much, right? 
But I also know there are a lot of people in this room who do not love yourselves enough. I'm sure there are people in this room that you cannot even look in a mirror when you're brushing your teeth because you, you do not want to see something staring back at you in the mirror. You don't like who you have become. You don't, know, you don't like how you look. And if we want to extend God's love to the world, we've got, it begins with us being able to receive God's love inside of us, who God thinks we are. So here are three things. I want you to take these with you this week. When the love of God moves, here are three things. There's obedience, there is impact, there is fearlessness. When the love of God begins to move in a life, when the love of God moves in the church, when the love of God moves throughout the world, there is obedience, there is impact, and there is fearlessness. There's obedience because, as I'm gonna show you in the next few weeks, love and the commands of God, love and obedience often go together. The Bible even says, the New Testament says, John says, that if you claim to love God, yet you do not follow his commands, you are a liar, all right? The love of God and commands go together. When the love of God moves, there is impact in the world. The world begins to feel the, begins to feel the impact of this. The people I look up to the most, the men I look up to and I want to strive to be like, the men I want to influence my kids have a love for God. I want them to have a love for God. Uh, there are, I can think of multiple men in my life, older men who are single and they always have been and they will die as single men who have a deep love for God and a deep love for mission and I want these people pouring into my kids. For those who are married, I want people pouring into my children who have a love for God and a love for their spouse and they do not make their spouses out to be the butt of jokes. They honor their families. But I know people who can love God and they love their families, but they do not love outside of what is their own. And the people I look up to and the people I want my kids to learn to, to be like are people who love God and they love their own, their family, their close network of friends, but they are living to love the entire world that God is seeking to redeem. Love has impact. And thirdly, love is fearless. And here's one of my great concerns today for the church. For a church like ours living in this kind of culture is the Bible says, 1 John says, that perfect love drives out fear. Yet we are living in a time where we are allowing fear to drive out perfect love. And this isn't good. It's hard though. Because there are times where things happen in our city or throughout the world, or there are terrorist attacks, or who knows what, or there are home invasions, and there are things that strike me with fear. I fear for my family sometimes. Back in January, there were just a number of things that happened, and I was two days away from going to Africa. I was going with Compassion International for a nine-day trip, and, and two days away, there were just so many things going on in the world. I, just, I remember I told Casey, I was like, baby, I, there's no way I can go. I do not want to leave you, and I do not want to leave the kids. And Casey looked at me, and she said, you're going to Africa. Because last fall, we prayed if this was a trip you needed to go on, and we believe the Lord blessed that, and God has something in store for you. And she looked at me, and she said, Josh, you teach our kids, you pray over them every single night that they will not be afraid, that they will not be driven by fear. And she said, you step up on that stage in front of Sycamore View almost every Sunday morning, and you teach the church, and you speak to them, let's not be driven by fear. And she said, it's time for you to practice what you preach. And at first I looked at her and I was like, baby, don't, don't use my words against me, all right? Like, <laughs> preachers don't like when that happens. Um, she's right. Perfect love drives out fear. My friend Kent Brantley, who was over in Africa, was struck with Ebola, became the New York Times person of the year, man of the year. And he's shared on multiple occasions what the love of God did in his life. Because when he came back and, and 
And there were people, there were even politicians who did not want him flying as a sick man with Ebola to America. They thought if you go over there, you, just, you either need to get well or die over there. But he, he came here where he was healed. And there were people who said, the love of God healed you. And he said, no, no, no. The love of God is what gave me Ebola. Because the love of God sent me to Africa. And the love of God woke me up every day to be among the dying. And the love of God woke me up every day to be right there with the sick. And the love of God sent me there. And the love of God kept me there. That the love of God is moving in us, calling us to go to places where it may be hard to go, but it's all for the glory and the mission of Jesus. So today, the love of God moves. And are we willing to keep pace with it? Will you just bow your heads and close your eyes where you are? And I want to ask you this morning uh, just to open your hands. You can open them up in your lap. You can lift them up in the air. I just want you to open your hands before the Lord. And God, my prayer in this room with open hands and open hearts is for you to speak words of love over this church. Speak words of identity. Uh, God, if there are some hard truths that you need to speak into people's lives in this moment or throughout this week, God, please speak them and give us open ears and open hearts to hear them and to receive them. Where there are hearts that have set up just huge walls or chasms uh, where it's hard for us to hear words of identity about your love. God, break through them in the power of the name of Jesus right now to remind us of who we are in you. God, give us clear ways to live out this love this week moments to be courageous and bold and loving and compassionate. May the goodness of Jesus shine in and throughout this city and beyond through what you do in and through this church. And I pray this in the power of the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to ask our elders and our prayer leaders, if you will, go to your places to receive people for prayer. And as a church, I invite you to go to any of these places. If this is a day that you need to repent and confess Jesus as the Lord of your life and be baptized, please join us in the front. And if you just want to go to someone around this room just to pray prayers of identity over you or a blessing over you, you can see where they are moving right now to receive you. Let's stand together and let's sing a couple of songs together.